zone, three, 12 and a half. So we're pretty much on axis. Okay, mm -hmm. I got that. I'm gonna put this back down. Lowest value. So this is usually either gonna be zone three or zone, it's gonna be the shadow side of these trees, these pine trees, or it's gonna be that fence. So we go in here, this one degree spot meter, and we, let's say we hit the fence. Something like this, because we're pretty close to that grass where you're trying to shoot to, and that peak's probably, what, four or five miles away. We're gonna drop this thing down to probably F45. Make sure nothing's moving. There you got it. When I was in Japan, I really loved the fabrics and textiles and things like that. I, I met like Issei Miyake and, I, and Yamamoto Kansai and Yoji Yamamoto. I met these guys. I was always in love with Japanese fabrics. So the idea of being able to print on these papers, which, you know, back in 2005, not a lot of people knew about that. And they certainly didn't know about doing large platinum prints, you know. I think what it is is I cut my teeth in Japan, so I was influenced by Japanese photographers. And probably the one that influenced me the most was uh, Shinzo Maeda, incredible photographer. Lived up in Hokkaido, shot a lot of 4x5, and then he went to um, Hasselblad Square format. And then I would see all the local. You were talking about Kinro Izu and of course, um, Sugimoto, people like that. Moved to Tokyo, I had a degree in acupuncture. So I went over there to uh, further my studies in acupuncture. And uh, I decided that uh, it was gonna be impossible to practice because it's socialized medicine. And I'd have to learn everything I already knew in English and Japanese, which I figured was gonna be another seven years before I could take a test in kanji. So I kinda went, um, I think I'm gonna just wait out a year and see how I like it here. Fell in love with the culture. Everything was new. I mean, it was literally like baby steps. You know, I couldn't speak the language. You would learn where you lived by looking at buildings and, you know, geo-mapping with your brain. <laughs> and then uh, I just became involved more and more with the cameras and, you know, photographing the countryside. There were a lot of fabulous shows that were always put on by department stores. So you would go there and, and it was, the photography was laid out just beautifully, like seeing, oh, just wrapped around the entire uh, department store, maybe sometimes five to 7,000 square feet, big places, you know. And then the photographer would be there and the Japanese kind of shy. They would buy some books every now and then. When you get to just talk to these folks, you know. Herb Ritz, got to know him, we're there. Uh, first time I met Michael Kenna was I was photographing in Meiji Jing and here's this guy with kind of curly hair walking like right in the middle of where I was photographing. I'm like, ah, ah. he's, you know, Michael, oh, so sorry. And he just kind of fades through, it's like, you know. And, uh, and of course he had shows at the Men Gallery at that time. And I think one of my breaks was that I was able to, my guarantor's family, one of the daughters worked at a very large photo agency, a stock photo agency called Amana at that time. It was Photonico and Amana. And they were like the premier one in Japan. So, I, she came up to me one year, this was about the second year into Japan, and said, you know, I've seen some of your work, you could actually start, you could make some money doing this. And I was like, how do you make money taking photographs of, you know, America and the Southwest? And she goes, well, stock photography. You had to have about 500 images in your portfolio, showed that. And I think my first check at that time was like $1,600. I went, God, this is great, you know. but. I mean, I gradually worked into photography. I uh, 
you know, I taught English for a while. I did transcribing because of what I'd studied, you know, as far as medical. I was worked with a lot of doctors who were doing international speeches abroad. So it was a very slow process, you know, of going from transitioning into it. So it's something you couldn't do overnight. But I traveled and photographed and worked up to from 35 to medium format. Eventually, I was able to uh, present a portfolio to Fujifilm, which was 8x10 work. And they took me on to be a consultant for some of their new films that they were coming out with back in the days with the Provia and the, and the Astia and those, those films. And I traveled all over America for many, many months with my now wife. And uh, we would be gone for you know, five to six months photographing all over the States and Canada for Fujifilm. Tokyo's what, at that time, I think it was 34 million people. Uh, I knew I could only go so far as a foreigner there. I mean, the big commercial jobs, they were, they were taken up by the Japanese, obviously. Um, it was funny, I had a friend one time, Mark Mason, who told me, you know, says, you know, in Japan, it's like most places, uh, you're nobody until you're somebody from someplace else. I ended up moving back to Jackson Hole, Wyoming in 2001, and we opened up this gallery here. Because I'd come through and I'd see work here and I'd see work in Santa Fe and New York and everything and I thought, well, you know, if I want to do a gallery, I really want to start with all 8x10 work. And I was able to do that because I was shooting and Fuji was providing the film and developing and they were doing my shows in Tokyo and it was all 8x10. So I thought, well, I'll be at least one up on a lot of folks, you know, as far as quality. I don't know about imagery, but, you know, quality. So, And about 2000, I think it was five or six, we started doing a lot more platinum work. Prior to that, I'd been doing some silver gelatin work with a lab called Hidden Light in Flagstaff, Arizona, with Stephen Saunders and Corey Allen, and, um, and that transitioned into platinum and bromoil work, too. In terms of prints that are challenging, um, all prints for the printer, there is a challenge for uh, the printer to understand what's what the vision of the photographer is because that's the only thing that matters. The photographer wants, in my experience, the print to be viewed by the client or by the viewer in a way that the viewer gets or understands what the photographer intended. And then once you're in sort of the photographer's head a little bit, you have the opportunity to technically produce the print. Right. Some of them are more technically demanding than others, but you can't even begin to try that, to start to know where you're going until you know this is what we're aiming at. Sometimes, you know, you get a negative or you get an image and you say, I don't really know where I want this to go. Where can it go? And then it becomes this collaborative process of discovery where you sort of say, you know, I've got this beautiful long exposure. I don't know if I want it light or dark or ethereal or sharp, or where do we want to go with this? There's so many variables that can be applied right. to an image that you could wind up with maybe a couple of different performances from the same image and still like them both. Yeah. It's a pure palladium print, which has a lot of, actually all of David's platinum palladium prints are pure palladium. Um, because of the contrast and the aesthetic that we're looking for, we don't need the platinum for this particular process. 
Um, and it's one of the more difficult ones to print. One, because of the size, and two, because all of these sort of continuous tones up here and the, the incredible range that you have um, from the, you know, the really dark stuff underneath the rocks and all of that into the, the extreme highlights. It's very difficult to get it to look right and to get an even coat and to you know, get it to do what it's supposed to do. So this is probably 30 or 40 hours in this one print, just putting it together. So from a pure palladium print, they're typically pretty warm and they typically don't have a lot of contrast. Um, I mean, for platinum palladium prints, but you know, they'll never compare to silver gelatin contrast. But when you have, uh, when you start adding platinum, you start getting contrast, you start cooling the tone a little bit, um, and it gets a little more interesting to develop. And this particular print is always done at 140 degrees. And so you lay the print down and you have to pour the developer and it has to go from edge to edge and across the print in about a second or less. And if it, you don't get it all the way full coverage, you see streaks and the print's ruined and you go do another one. And that's part of the process is you gotta learn how to do it. And that's one of the reasons that these enormous prints are so much more difficult than the little ones is you gotta get, cause it, it develops instantly. Like in a silver gelatin darkroom, you can kind of watch the print come up out of the chemistry. And that's a magical sort of experience. But with platinum palladium or pure palladium, in this case, it's instant. It's almost yeah. difficult. Yeah. But, you know, it was only difficult from a technical standpoint. It wasn't difficult from the vision standpoint. He knows what he wants. We just have to figure out a way to put it together. And, and that's our job. people say, well, why didn't you shoot this as large format? Because there was ever so slight breeze, and of course, the leaves are kind of moving just a little bit. And I was shooting this probably at about 125th of a second, 5.6 or something with the ISO. 8x10, it would have been a lot slower. It would have been a lot more mushy on the edges and everything like that. So. Uh, the quality though is, oh my God. I mean, you could blow this up. The detail's there, yeah. it, it'll go bigger. Yeah, it's it's a huge file. And constantly when I'm shooting, I'm thinking, okay, my max, I'm gonna go in length, it's gonna be 52 inches because we classically frame everything. So 52 because the papers, you know, well, the glass size 40 by 60. Height wise, 32, I gotta stop there. So you're just thinking, how, what's it gonna take to get it to that size where the resolution is gonna be just impeccable. And then you, you either have to, Eight by ten or multiple shots, because you're not going to do it with one thirty-five, unless you're going to be one of those folks that say, "Well, if you stand back, it's probably about I don't know, maybe two in the afternoon. Uh, light was up, shooting straight down on it, but there were all these leading lines that were coming into it, you know, into the print with this tree just illuminated. I thought, okay, this is going to make an incredible black and white if we can pull it off. Every area of extreme highlight that you see. Um, that needed, you know, all of this up here, it needed to be burned down. It needed, you, you gotta, it can't be, this can't be as bright as this, because then you lose, you know, the whole point of the image, this incredible glowing tree. So we ended up having to go back to some interesting techniques and we used um, ruby lift masks on, on the paper to mask in and burn only this area and only this area and some of this over here um, after you've printed the digital negative, because of this size it costs you know, so much to print the negative, and it will only go so far with your inkjet. You know, you can only get so much density in those areas to make it look normal. So sometimes you gotta do both. You do a digital negative with, you know, a contact print to silver, and then you also have to use some of the old school burning and dodging techniques that you learned in high school. And the masking. You know, and the masking to, to really get that area to just, just sit on the edge of detail. 
right. so you can see what it does. And if we were to print this in platinum, it would look completely different oh, in pretty much every way. Yeah. I was really bad in Japan when it came to themes. The Japanese would always say, well, what's your tema? Tema, I'm like, God, I hate that word, tema. What's your theme? Because I would just, I couldn't stick with a theme. Like, they're thinking 15 years from now, are you still gonna be doing seascapes, you know, around the world? I'm like, no, I mean, God, <laughs> I get rid of my wardrobe every six months. Come on, you know, I can't do that. So, uh, I'm just not, that's not me. I'm, I'm much more spontaneous. I had a friend one time who said, you know, the day that your signature becomes more important than what is going on, your, your work has lost its soul. And that is so true. And you just see that so often nowadays. But um, most photographers, when I ask them, I go, well, so who are your collectors? They go, well, I, I don't really have... Uh, uh, so you're shooting for yourself. Well, your expectations are not going to be that good because you have to... You know, you're cooking a meal for yourself, it's gonna be not like you're cooking for your best friends or, or you know, people you're wanting to cook for. It always would just uh, blow my mind when I talk to people about tea ceremony. It's like, well, how long have you been doing this? Ah, uh, 32 years, oh, 32 years, but you know. Finally, you figure out why it takes because of every single phase and how you walk through it, the motion, the movement, you know, and that's what it's all. You know, at some point you peak, but at some point you peak into one little area, but you get better in other little areas. And you're not doing the extreme stuff you used to do, but you're doing more subtle stuff, you know, so. And that's the length of an artist. You, know, you reinvent yourself through different mediums or your style changes or you get a little bit better there. So, yeah, just, uh, you know, just keep going. What do they say in Japanese? Isho kimbe, you just keep one step, one step, one step, one step, get better, get better, you know, so.